This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change becomes more apparent, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th-century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero-emissions energy, zero-emissions buildings and zero-emissions high-speed rail. Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radio team at beyondzeroemissions.org. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the Beyond Zero Emissions community show. And salut, Babette. I've got Adele with me here in the studio, plus Michaela, and I think Andy's coming in later, so I'm very happy because we're well supported. Uh, Tonight's show is mostly about trees, but at the end we'll talk to David Shoebridge from the New South Wales Parliament. He'll tell us about the legal precedent set last week where a coal mine was actually refused because of the climate impact of its product. There's a lot going on to stop Adani, to stop fracking in the Northern Territory, to stop oil drilling in the Great Australian Bight, and there are court cases around the world. I even heard on Sunday the uh, young school strikers for climate, they're all about 14 or 13, year nine children, they said that they are go- they're considering litigation, so look out. Stay tuned till the end because hearing that bit of good news from David Shoebridge I think will really hearten you. We also have good news potentially from Professor Justin Borowitz. He's been modelling how we could draw down a gigaton of carbon on our farms. You might not know what a gigaton looks like. I don't really know, but I know that the world need is for 10 gigatons. So Australia could do one gigaton on its own on our farms. Then we'll talk to Peg Putt. She went to COP24 in Poland to protect our forests. Apparently the delusion is being put around that burning wood is actually carbon neutral. Let's give no incentives to Bolsonaro in Brazil to cut down the Amazon or to anybody in Australia where we are actually matching Brazil in land clearing. Still on that theme of trees, we'll talk to Bruce Pascoe about the indigenous practices to care for the land. He wrote the book Dark Emu about Aboriginal agriculture. He made a rousing speech at the Sustainable Living Festival yesterday, and we'll play that later in the year. He said, caring for the land makes you strong. So let's listen now to Justin Borowitz. Hello. Hello, Justin. Welcome. Um, Look, you told the conference that you had into uh, negative emissions. I haven't introduced you yet. um, Justin Borovitz is with us from ANU in Canberra. He's in the Research School of Biology and he's a professor of vulnerability and adaptation to climate change. So he's right in our neck of the woods. And last year he had a conference on negative emissions. So, Justin, last last year you told that conference that with 100 million acres of existing farms you could draw down one gigaton 
of carbon. How would the land look different if you were doing that? Well, it would look a lot greener. Um, one gigatons of, of carbon dioxide, uh, that's, that's a little bit less than pure carbon, uh, a third or so. Um, yeah, I think uh, if we want to get serious about regenerating uh, this country and, uh, and really putting the, the land use into full force, then we could do something. We could do something large like that and clean up for our, our history. Well, I, it would look greener, but would you plant a lot more trees in those? I think the last time you talked, you talked to me about silver culture, where you have livestock, but you also have these alleys of trees and um, legumes. It would was that the one of the main techniques? I think so. It would be a combination of regenerative agriculture and uh, ecosystem restoration. So some of it would be forest enhancement, and some of it would be new tree planting uh, on crop and pasture land, sort of uh, alley farming or uh, shelter belts, as they used to be called. Well, land clearing is as bad in Australia at the moment as it is in Brazil, and I wasn't really sure if that was correct, and I asked Gerard Wedderburn Bishop, so thanks, a call out to him for sending me the correct uh, fact-checked, ABC fact-checked, which says, yes, Australia is clearing as much land at the moment as Brazil, and land clearing contributes to climate change and untold deaths. Um, today in the news there were 300,000 cattle drowned by the Townsville floods. I saw this you know, article about that and only the most, they're only the most visible and tragic victims. So how would you persuade landholders to change around, not to have just livestock on land like that with no trees and no barriers and raging floods whenever there's a flood? How would you persuade them to put in more regenerative agriculture? That's the tough challenge, Vivian. That's, I know. Uh, I think the social side and engaging people is uh, is the hard one, and so thanks for your show and to all the listeners. But for those, I think, early adopters, uh, innovators and early adopters and the early majority, they might be want to do this and they want to get started. They might be limited by know-how, and that's where certainly the universities and the... Um, the research development corporations can can play a big role. Uh, the financing would probably be the next uh, limitation for the people that want to do it. And so there's certainly room for um, Clean Energy Development uh, Council and government funds and banks to uh, to look at retirement portfolio reinvestment. And um, clean energy is the similar to regenerative funds. So I, I think we'll see a lot of innovation in this next decade in, in that area. Well, that's interesting you mentioned because they have to make a profit and we have an emissions reduction fund. And I wondered if farmers are going to get a cash payment for the emissions reductions that they do make. How are your new um, precision tools? That, I know you're modelling a lot of ways of um, exactly quantifying how much um, you know carbon they're sequestering or how high their trees are growing. You've got all these drones and things I've seen on your website. How would you help them tell the emissions trading people exactly what they're drawing down? Yeah, well, that's a challenge. Uh, but I think that we're doing it already. They are uh, paying, making payments for carbon farming, a couple of billion dollars already spent, but we need to really put that into uh, hundreds of billions of dollars to, to make a difference on the scale that is possible and that is necessary for the environment. So we have, a, a, in Australia, I think we're ahead uh, of the world in our, our trading, carbon farming, uh, so we could accelerate that. Um, 
it, it is easy to see trees from space, so we can monitor um, the land cover and canopy cover. We will be water limited. That's a big uh, challenge in this country, as well as nutrients. Uh, but there, there are ways of rehydrating the landscape and um, and applying rock dust, if we're going to talk about that, for rock mineral nutrients. Yeah. So there's, there's quite a few... Uh, precision agronomic tools that can be applied to uh, agroforestry and also to ecosystem restoration to really supercharge this, both uh, at scale uh, in time and in space. Yeah. Well, look, we'll talk about the rock dust a bit later because that's what they were talking about in Poland at the COP24. But I want to know a bit more about how you would... Uh, farmers would qualify how do they say look I went out to Ararat for example and I saw these people on a, on the catchment of the river a couple and all these sort of backpackers who were overseas students who were coming um, to help out on farms you know and they they were planting hundreds of trees and I saw it and but I said to them how much are you getting as a sort of carbon uh, dividend for that and he said nothing so far you know but uh it hasn't flowed through to him. So, right. how, how can... it's true that there's a few big players that have been monopolizing most of the uh, the, the existing payments for for tree planting. Uh, but it it it's time for you know some policy revision and renewal and expansion. And so, um, the, I think we need to work on that. I don't have all the answers uh, no. exactly, but it's uh, it's possible and. Nor are the models so tight that we're tracking every uh, bit of carbon in the system, but it is um, no. There's no perfect solution, and we have to get started. Well, you mentioned in um, in the YouTube that was at your conference, you mentioned something called vertical land management, and you said, "Look, there's not enough land in the world to plant." enough trees for all the uh, biofuel we might need or all the ethanol, corn for ethanol and all of that. You know, if we're going to start using all the land for fuels, how, how are we going to eat? And you talked about vertical land management. How, how, how does that work? Well, I think it's a concept that's popularized in urban agriculture where you want to, you know, grow indoors with LED lights and these vertical uh, high-rise farms. But to apply it out on, on the landscape, it would just be integrating trees as well as perennial grasses and then really focusing on soil carbon, improving soil carbon with uh, biochar and, and rock minerals and also, you know, sequestering uh, in the biomass of the trees. And so there's multiple layers, at least uh, three, you could say. Three. So add in some layers. I mean, I must say, I travel back and forth from Sydney to Melbourne on the train, and really the land does pre- look pretty much like a monoculture to me, except when the canola all comes out and it's very pretty. But it's a lot of just dry grass and a few cows and not enough trees to really protect them in the sun. Um, I sort of feel there needs to be some vertical management of you know diversification on the land that would make it better for everybody. Yeah, yeah. there are older ideas. I think agroforestry. Um, just hasn't yet uh, come of age, maybe, and needs uh, a little more technical uh, assistance. The, uh, it's complicated when you add multiple layers. It's more to manage, uh, but and there's more to get wrong. But I think we have all the precision tools now and the models, and, uh, and we can try to uh, incorporate another variable and, and get the benefits from it. And there's multiple benefits. Uh, of trees in the landscape. Shade is one, especially uh, if you think about the, the record droughts that we've had this past year, having some 
some trees to hold the soil and uh, and bring up some of the deeper moisture, it, it really can have a lot of benefits. Yeah, well, that's what we're talking about tonight, trees. And the article you sent me said that by far, and, you know, really by far, um, keeping the forests we've got, keeping the land cover we've got, and then reforesting, adding forest, um, is the way to draw down. The Nature Conservancy, they call it natural climate. Yeah, Yeah. well, to me that's obvious, and yet we're land clearing here and there seems to be no hold to it. Now, our next um, speaker is going to be someone who went to COP24 to to argue against, you know, this um, biofuel being, uh, having a loophole around that. But um, how do you think you can... Persuade, you know, where we seem to be governments come in and they relax the land clearing laws, and then the next com- government comes in promising to tighten them. But this back and forth is not suitable for a landscape that needs to endure. How can we keep it as a permanent heritage, the, the uh, tree cover? It's, it's a tough one. Um, I think that we need to, to put a value on carbon. I suppose that's been said quite a bit, and it needs to be secure and long term. Um, I think banks have a role to play. They need to look after the natural capital. We're starting to see that. National Australia Bank's got a natural capital program. Um, and they also the Meat and Livestock Association is aiming for the zero-carbon uh, beef by 2030. And so there'll be, I think, market incentives for higher quality, um, you know, sort of um, regenerative uh, situations. So people will be able to get a premium, I think, if they're doing the right thing by the land, and they'll want that to be certified. Mm. So um, we can do some certification by satellites. I know New Zealand at least tracks, you know, the, the wool uh, on the sheep. You can figure out uh, exactly where your wool sweater comes from. So we have a lot of new technologies to be able to, to certify where our food uh, and fiber comes from, and we'd like to see that uh, coming from well-managed farms. Yeah, well, I'm sorry to... It sounds as if I'm sort of in panic mode because we're in the climate community. Everyone's talking about overshoot and collapse, collapse of pollinators and so on, and you sound more laid back, but then you're in this world of um, modelling, and I think for you it's quite clear that we could do this, but then... The other well, dimension. I, I do struggle with the social science. On the, on the yeah. biophysical side, which is my area, I just want to make a couple of points. So bioenergy is really the energy of photosynthesis, right? And so we've captured the carbon out of the atmosphere into plants, and that's, that's rather labile. It could uh, be burned and gone back into the atmosphere. So a lot of people think biofuels, uh, you know, it's burning is the problem. It doesn't matter whether it's fossil fuels or bio. It goes up into the atmosphere and just to get a little bit uh, of electricity out of it is, is not really worth it now that renewables are so uh, cheap and easy. So we want to store that captured carbon right there in soils. And instead of burning it uh, you know, efficiently in a power plant, we'd like to inefficiently burn it in a biochar so we can make that carbon more permanent last mm. for uh, thousands of years. The other way of storing it is in the roots below ground by rock weathering. Um, well, yes. That, we talk about that. Yeah, well, I, I was really excited when I read what you'd said about that because you said um, basalt, um, you know, is very uh, common in the same place where coal mines are and you could also solve the problem of the workers having to transition out of uh, coal mines into basalt mining, which would then be used on the soil. But most people haven't heard about that. Could you tell us briefly about that? 
Well, David Beerling is really the lead of that from the Liberty Hue Center in the UK, and uh, and that he did a, a talk at at the Poland the COP conference that you were talking about. So, their approach is is these these mafic rocks, largely basalt, which may be ten twenty percent uh, calcium and magnesium, and when when the atmospheric uh, carbon dioxide, the carbonic acid in the rain weathers and breaks these rocks apart, then some of that CO2 is locked away, sort of makes car- calcium carbonate, magnesium carbonate, like the bones, and that ultimately make the limestone in the soil. So the idea is to enhance that rock weathering by mining and crushing and spreading those rocks onto soils. It provides alkalinity, which is really important for our acidic soils. And then a little bit of phosphate is released, which is important nutrient. And also with the alkalinity, phosphate's more plant available, which helps the plant grow. So it's like bulk fertilizer in the same way that biochar is kind of a, a bulk fertilizer. And so the plants, the roots actually excrete a lot of their photosynthate to mine the rocks. And when they do that, that carbon is locked in. Uh, into the soil. Well, thank so you. It's sort of a, a multi-layer. You've got yeah. uh, the plants, you've got the microbes, you've got the biochar and the rocks that uh, all work well together on the same land. Well, thank you for telling us about it, Justin. You're a very good communicator, and I, I, when I saw that at COP24, I thought, oh, that sounds way out, but they were very keen on it, and people I've asked seem to be also very interested in it. So I know it's not the only solution, but it's a one Part of the, I might say, say one more quick thing yeah. about uh, fires as they're raging uh, in Tasmania and other places. Like, yeah, quickly. We, we, uh, we can try to do prescribed fire or pre-burn so that um, it's similar to the, the biochar idea that yeah. if you burn uh, in a cool, uh, wet morning, you can you know make that inefficient and leave the charcoal on the ground. So pre-burning is a way of also storing that carbon. Yeah, we're going to talk to two other people and just yeah. about that. So thank you so much right. for talking Wonderful. to us. That was Professor Justin yeah, Borovitz from ANU, and he's a, a, an expert in adaptation, vulnerability and climate change. So thank you, Justin. We're going to have a little brief um, community announcement and then we're going to talk to Peg Putt in Tasmania. Welcome back to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show. And now we've got Andy with us in the studio. Uh, Peg Putt is speaking to us from Tasmania. She's the coordinator of the Working Group on Forests, Climate and Biomass that reported to the United Nations COP24 in Katowice. And when I called her last week, she was surrounded by bushfires. So welcome to B- the BZE show, Peg, and I'd like to know, how are you? Oh, hello. Good afternoon. How are the fires? Um- uh, well, the fires have settled down a little, but they're still burning. Um, we had a change in the weather. We had a bit of rain, but not enough to put them out. So um, many of them are um, sort of slightly suppressed, but waiting to take off if there's um, warm weather and more winds. So we still have a lot to look out for. Um, we've got the fires that were near um, where pe- many people live, and I myself live in the Huon Valley, um, and that, of course, has been very frightening about the impacts it could have on um, lives and on um, people's homes. Um, and then there's the fires in the wilderness, which are equally scary for their massive impact on um, really outstanding uh, world heritage values in the alpine 
vegetation, much of which has never seen a fire over millennia, and we're looking at species that could be completely wiped out by fire. And on top of all that, a lot of that is actually on peat soils, so they're really carbon-dense soils, and we've got that going up into the atmosphere as well. Oh, it's an absolute tragedy, and the, all the little animals and little, you know, un, non-iconic species, you know, they're just going west mm. too. Well, and, and, and iconic species too, species like the um, swift parrot, which are down to a couple of thousand of breeding, breeding pairs and that um, have been reliant on the production forests um, in Tasmania for their habitat and been really badly affected by logging. We're now seeing that the fire got into the places where the logging has happened and where regrowth forest has replaced old growth and is much more fire-prone than the old growth. Yeah, although we're going to get onto that later with Bruce Pascoe about that sort of thing. But look, our subject tonight is trees, and we're obviously mm. depending on them to sequester carbon, you know, for the future, the climate future. So what's your response to these wildfires um, from the Arctic Circle to California to Tasmania and even now New Zealand's on fire? And this sort of global trend and drying out, I think, of a lot of the land that's never, as you said, some of it's never seen fire before. What's your response to that? Well, it's, it's obviously really alarming and upsetting that this should happen. But what we're seeing is exactly what has been predicted, that as climate change uh, goes on, uh, feedback loops come into place that actually start um, making, it, you know, making it worse. And one of those things is when it gets warmer and drier and, and the forests dry out, then, and we have an increase in dry lightning strikes, which has been a dramatic increase in the last 20 years in Tasmania from virtually seeing, you know, none or one or two in a storm now to seeing thousands. Oh. Um, then, then away it goes. Um, and so we've got this feedback loop very obviously occurring. However, I would say that we don't need to think that all the carbon in those forests went into the atmosphere. The studies that have, been, have looked at what's happened um, in relation to intense fires in the past, including those uh, terrible ones in Victoria on Black Saturday, shows that um, in uh, forests that were intact, in fact, a lot of the carbon stayed in the forest. You saw the trees getting charred and burnt, but you didn't see them completely disappearing and annihilated. Uh, a lot of that standing carbon stays. And, and in fact, we see that in the landscape in Tasmania. I can still see the big old stags that are now white with age stand out the top of the forest from when the huge fire happened in 1967. And that was a long time ago now. But um, that standing carbon of those old trees is still there. So it's a problem and we've lost a lot, but we haven't lost it all. It's not the same as what um, the uh, foresters and, um, and the um, uh, coal industry are really pushing, which, yeah. is, which is logging and burning forests for um, electricity production. When you do that, that does annihilate all the carbon that was in those trees, and it's actually more emissive than burning coal. So that's the, that's the sort of thing we really have to watch out for. Well, that's your real subject, isn't it? And that's why I wanted to speak to you, because these wood-fired power stations are being allowed as a zero-emissions technology, and you went to the United Nations to get them to close the loopholes around that. It's not zero emissions. And what was your argument? Well, basically, that 
the carbon dioxide emissions from burning wood for, for a unit of energy that's generated are actually more upfront than generating that unit of energy from coal. Um, when you burn stuff, you basically um, emit carbon dioxide. And because burning wood is less efficient um, and you get you know, green wood and so on, it hasn't been compressed like coal, you actually have to burn more of it to get the same amount of energy. So it's a really bad idea. That's not to say that burning coal is any better of an idea. It's not. We have to simply stop burning things. And I think your previous um, interviewee said exactly the same thing. Mm -hmm. Burning is not the solution. We can't find our way out of the climate crisis with that. But the problem is that um, burning forests for electricity has been defined as a renewable energy. And Europe has taken the lead in its renewable energy policies of doing burning forest material at a large scale in electricity generators to substitute for coal. Now, they do that either by um, completely converting a coal generator or by building a new standalone um, wood biomass generator or uh, by introducing a proportion of wood into the mix with coal. Um, so they actually managed to lengthen the life of coal-fired power stations uh, by um, injecting this so-called renewable energy or else just completely across to, go across to what they call renewable energy generation. The problem is it emits carbon dioxide. However, this remains hidden from um, the accounts that you see in Europe because it is designated as zero in the energy sector where the accounting for emissions is, is undertaken. So yeah. you see the amount for coal, yeah. you see the amount for oil, you see the amount for gas, and you see a big fat zero next to burning wood. Oh, it makes me so, so sick because this is like a really uh, deliberate delusion, isn't it? I think so. I mean, the, the argument goes, well, that should be accounted for in the land and forest sector and not in the energy sector. So although you won't see it um, next to all the other sources of energy generation, you'll see it elsewhere mm. in the accounts of a country. Now, there are some there are serious problems with that. I mean, the first one is you simply, many people just look at the energy accounts and it looks like an incentive to burn wood and off they go and they do it. Um, the second thing is that the country burning the wood isn't always the country that generated the wood. So, mm. for example, in Europe, they're pulling in forest um, minced up for um, and made into pellets for, for burning from all over the place, but particularly actually from the biodiverse swamp forests of the southern US at the moment. Um, and they are annihilating huge amounts of natural forests which they don't actually have to carry any emissions responsibility for in their national accounts. Mm. The country that's meant to therefore take responsibility for it is the one that grew the forest. But in the case of the US, they haven't been uh, um, a signatory to the Kyoto Protocol and they don't take responsibility for it. And um, in fact, they say they're not going uh, uh, so, you know, to sign up to the Paris Agreement either. Mm. So they're not going to take responsibility then. So there's just a massive loophole. Well, and this is the same 
for, a, a, for many sources of the wood because they've come from developing countries that haven't had to account for it mm. today. I, I can say, when I first started reading the word, loophole sounded to me like a very small thing. But then I realised oh. reading your material that Japan and Korea, for example, are centres for biomass consumption. Biomass is going to increase by 250% in the next decade. And for me, that's like a massive big uh, green light to, for example, Brazil to, you know, destroy the Amazon for, and for us, you know, to any any country to pelletize their wood. And there was a film, apparently, I'll just tell listeners the name of this film. It's called Burned, and it asks the question, are trees the new coal? And I think maybe you're part of that film. Do, what do you think about that? Are trees the new coal? Well, yes, and in fact, we did a we did a report which um, I asked the um, filmmaker, "Do you mind that our report, which was a threat atlas of the expansion plans of this burning forest industry, um, do you mind if we call it our forests the new coal?" And she said, "Go right ahead, um, because it is exactly the problem." And what we're seeing is, you're, everyone thinks Europe is great on renewable energy. In fact. The majority of, of renewable energy, by far the biggest source of renewable energy produced in Europe, is burning forests for power. It way dwarfs wind power and solar power, and but yet they get this really good rap for how great they are on renewable energy. I mean, they're better than Australia, but that's not saying a lot. Um, and, and so Japan and South Korea have decided they're going to adopt the same approach because mm. everybody reckons Europe's great on it. And so now we are looking at, um, at a minimum, a 250% increase in the amount of burning forests for um, electricity production. And um, the industry itself is saying they're not quite sure where they're going to get all the wood from. But it's clear they're set to scalp the forests of the world in doing so. Oh, this is really terrible news. This is much worse than I thought. And uh, we haven't got much more time, uh, Peg, but I have to talk to you again. But the last thing is, um, like... <sighs> What is the Labour Party's position in Australia? We're going towards an election. I went to their conference in Adelaide and I didn't hear anything about this, but apparently their um, you know, new environmental policy is pretty cool about this. Um, well, um, yeah, Labour have made themselves part of the problem on this. Um, previously, when they were in government, they did have an exception whereby they did not allow for the renewable energy target to embrace the burning of native forests for electricity. They have now dropped that and they now support its use. So this is really bad news um, because instead of moving it to a more robust policy position, they've actually watered it down. And I think a lot of people do not understand that Labor now would support the clear felling of forests and the use of, um, of, of uh, a lot of that material coming off for burning for electricity production. What's happened in the last few years is that our wood chip export trade has fallen because the quality of those chips out of our native forests is not as acceptable to the market and neither is the endangerment of species that it entails. Mm. 
Um, so instead, they're looking for some other way to sell that material and to, if and possibly to get it subsidised. And the answer, of course, is call it forest biomass and burn it for electricity and you'll get all sorts of subsidy as well as a way to entrench yourself in, log in logging the remaining uh, precious native forest. So it's a real lose-lose scenario and very disappointing that Labor has gone there. Yeah, all right. Well, look, thank you very much and thank you for being such a battler going to all these international conferences and telling us about it and being part of that film Burned, um, Our Trees, The New Coal. Listeners, look at that and also when you're voting, put your MPs up to this question. Um, thank you very much, Peg. I noticed there's a new group called Extinction Rebellion and one of their key points is tell the truth and I think a lot of truth needs to be told, a lot more light needs to be shown on this. So thank you for participating tonight. You're most welcome. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, now I don't think we've got time for more music, but uh, we're going to have Bruce Pascoe in a minute. I'd just like to say to you listeners, please subscribe. We're having a, a week of asking people just to subscribe to being a member of 3CR. You can go online to 3cr.org.au and... Um, you know, help us continue, which is just you become a member and uh, you subscribe. Uh, it's called Feed Radical Radio. If you're uh, on a pension, it's $35. If you're working, it's $75. And if you're a group or if you'd like to be in solidarity, it's $150. To be a member of 3CR, it's a very good club to join. So now we're going to talk to Bruce Pascoe. Hello, Bruce, are you there? I am, yep. Thank you very much. I'll just tell the listeners, uh, Bruce is the author of Dark Emu. He's a historian who not only reads the old explorer's diaries, but who talks to people who've been entrusted with traditional knowledge. And he told the Sustainable you're listening to, Festival yesterday... You're, li you're listening to... Sorry. Three C he told the... Well, now we know we're listening to 3CR. <laughs> he told the Sustainable Living Festival that it's a bit unfashionable to talk about love. But that's what we need to show the land we live on. And that sets a completely different tone when you talk like that, Bruce. So welcome. Let's start there. Um, do you want to elaborate a bit on that, how you gave that tone to the SLF? Yeah, I think we have to have a um, relationship with our land, which isn't purely commercial. Um, we, we don't want to be treating the land like an object, uh, you know, has to be uh, treated like the mother uh, that it is. Um, and I'd, I think if we were able to do that, we would treat the earth a lot better. We'd look after our land and rivers a lot better and uh, they would be able to look after us uh, because we, we've treated land and rivers so badly that now we're seeing that their death is um, starting to impact on us. And, you know, it's a, it shouldn't have to be said that uh, that's happening, uh, but uh, people are very slow to come to that realisation. And now is the time when, you know, the death of all those fish, the unavailability of water for small holdings, because uh, it's been gobbled up by big holdings, uh, now is the time to have this conversation and, and be fair and income about it. And this business of selling water, um, we have to get realistic about it. It's not a commodity. You know, it belongs to the land. The water belongs to the land. 
we can use it, as we've always done, as people around the world have always done, but we can't use 100% of it. No, and we can't just use it for profit. It has to be in balance with the other needs. Yeah, it's, um, in Victoria at the moment, they're uh, arguing that in drought conditions, they should be able to use the environmental flows as is happening in New South Wales as well as Queensland. And that's the thin end of the wedge, the slippery slope then, that uh, because you erode the value and the usefulness of those uh, environmental flows. We just have to uh, start looking at the crops we grow and, uh, and, and realise that this is not Europe and that we can't grow such water-hungry crops in a drying continent. No, it's a very slow realisation, isn't it? And you've been, what I've most moved by, by your book and what you said yesterday too, is you're sort of in touch with the early Aboriginal people who met those explorers and first settlers and they told them, the Aboriginal people told them things like where to plant trees, where where to burn, when not to burn, how to burn, things like that. The, the, mm. the information was passed down and I, you know, we've absolutely ignored it. Yeah. Well, we ignored that information along with ignoring the fact that Aboriginal people had their own agricultural economy. You know, because we couldn't bear to acknowledge one, we couldn't acknowledge the other. Um, it's a sad state of human affairs that um, the colony of Australia was so bloody-minded about Aboriginal knowledge. Um, but... Hopefully, um, there's a, a chance to redress that uh, because, you know, the more I go around Australia, the more I realise that the, the goodwill of Australians is uh, there to be galvanised. Well, that's good news. And also, I'm glad that that knowledge didn't really die out completely because you said that you found lots of um, information in the diaries but you also found people who who had received traditional knowledge and had yeah. somehow kept it and were able to pass on so what did you find out in you know and I wonder now is it is this knowledge available is it is it published anywhere like is it just oral history that you're finding out or yeah mostly oral history but there's a lot in the, on the public record as well we just have to retrieve it. We've never done a literature search in this country no. for that kind of material. Mm. And I'm um, really keen that we do a literature search for every interaction where Aboriginal people were witnessed handling food and processing it mm -hmm. and every interaction where Aboriginal people were using fire. I think if we did that, we would accumulate a lot of knowledge. But we also then have to go back to traditional owners and ask them um, their memories, their use of fire, their current use of fire, and uh, all of those things uh, will accumulate a lot of knowledge. Yeah, well, we hear a lot about forests. We, we call them carbon sinks, you know, which is exactly mm. what you said, commodifying the thing, and, I, and I'm the worst to do mm. that because I'm so worried about climate change that I do think of a forest as a carbon sink and I'm horrified to see them burning all around mm. the world. But at the moment, all these wildfires are turning them into a net carbon emitter, even though our mm. last speaker, Peg, said the carbon isn't all gone. 
tree stands, but you know this is the the soot even you know that's having a great forcing effect on climate change. Um, do you see a better way to manage forests, you know, so that they wouldn't burn despite the drying yeah. conditions? Yeah, I think we should um, double the price of all timber uh, so that we start using it properly, um, making sure that um, for every tree we cut down, we ensuring that there's wood for the future. We're always going to be using wood. It's a terrific product, but we've got to make sure that we're not absolutely trashing the forest in order to get it. Uh, that's not how it was done in the old days, either by the um, farmers or or by Aboriginal people, but it, that's what's happening now. And you, oh, you heard you talking before about this furphy of uh, burning forest trash to produce energy. That's um, just a way of, as you said, uh, selling the wood pulp that you can't sell now. Just a commercial decision. It's got nothing to do with the forest. It's got nothing to do with Australian value. Uh, it's keeping, you know, a handful of people employed. When when I first came down here, you go into the forest where there were forest operations and there'd be 15 blokes um, using chainsaws and uh, trimming logs and uh, you know, making fence posts out of them and all of that sort of stuff. Now when you go into one of those coops, there's one bloke with three machines. Yeah. You know, we, you know, country people sometimes blame greenies for the lack of employment in the forest. It's not greenies, it's machines. Mm. Machines have ruined employment in the forest industry mm. and um, we, that's something we need to redress because it's affected small towns. The one I'm in now... I'm standing on the veranda of the uh, local hotel here and, you know, I'm looking at three shops that have closed down, yeah. never reopened yeah, um, because the the town died. Mm. Where are you, Bruce? I'm in um, Genoa, near Malacuta. Near Malacuta. The closest town to me. Yeah. Oh. Six hours from Melbourne. Mm. Well, look, you said yesterday at the Sustainable Living Festival the way Forests look now are so different than they were two or three hundred years ago. You said th yeah. that you know there were glades before, big, strong, yeah. huge trees and glades around them. So there was not a chance of forest uh, forest fires no. catching on like that. What, what what can be done there? You said it'd take seventy years, but we'd need all the governments in between to all cooperate, which is mm. a hard thing to imagine. But you know, if yeah. we had governments that cooperate and committed to that, what would that look like? How would you do it? Well, uh, I think if people read Bill Gamage's book, they would get a, a pretty clear picture of how um, Australia looked to the early settlers when they first arrived. They looked, thought it was a gentleman's park. They thought it was so park-like and couldn't understand how it had been produced. They thought Australia was just like that. But Aboriginal people had been doing that by cool burning, uh, but also by weeding, you know, creating spaces in the forest for vegetables and grasses and uh, livestock, kangaroos and emus, and managing the forest like that. And there were fewer trees, uh, but they were bigger. And, uh, you know, some of those old red gums covered an acre. You know, oh. the spread of their branches was just oh. incredible. Yeah. Well, 
Look, in October we had unprecedented bushfires. I live in Sydney and I was sort of aware it's only October and, and Bundaberg's on for outside Bundaberg. It was big fires and I, I thought that was the wet tropics up there. And they say the land is drying out, but um, what are your thoughts on rehydrating the land and restoring soils and, and drawing down carbon? I think uh, that's the way to go. That uh, Peter Andrews was talking yesterday about a way of um, saving water on farms, saving water generally by making it um, penetrate the soil. So making sure that the land isn't compacted too much by livestock so that water can actually uh, feed into the soil and replenish aquifers and things like that. Um, and all of, all of those water-saving things are so crucial in this country, more crucial now than they've ever been. But it requires us to be fair to income about the science. Um, you know, what, sooner or later a government's going to take climate change seriously and start looking at these devices and one of the devices is planting perennials instead of having annuals plant perennials so the yeah. perennial grains aren't as uh you don't get the yield off them that you would get off an annual like wheat or oats yeah but you don't have to plant them again you don't have to um you know flood them with water you don't have to flood them with pesticide or uh, fertilizer you know, especially if they're Australian grains, they want to grow here. They were born here. They're used to the conditions, they're used to the pests, and um, we just have to handle our country differently. So if you've got a, a perennial grain, uh, you, you don't have to do anything to it other than harvest it uh, after it's established, and your stock can graze it as well, as long as you're not over-grazing it. Yeah. Uh, so there's a you know, multiplicity of uses of these plants and they're sequestering carbon. Yeah, fantastic. And it's, as you say, it's native to here, so it can adapt to whatever's happening to our climate here too. Mm. All right, look, thank you so much for talking. I feel much calmer having talked to you. I was getting quite <laughs> overwrought by the last horrible, horrible things that Peg Putt was telling yeah. us in all these top yeah, in, United Nations. Up. Oh, never give up. No, thank you. Never give up. <laughs> no, never give up. Thank you very much, Bruce. It's been lovely talking to you. you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. So that was Bruce Pascoe, who's the author of Dark Emu. I really suggest you read that, listeners. And now we are hurrying, but I don't want to hurry too much. We're going to talk to David Shoebridge. Um, something great happened last week. The New South Wales Land and Environment Court rejected the Rocky Hill coal mine, saying it was proposed at the wrong time. And Justice Preston then mentioned climate change. It's kind of amazing that anyone would bring climate change into the decision about a coal mine. He said it's the wrong time because the coal product will increase global total concentrations of greenhouse gas at a time when what is now urgently needed is a rapid and deep decrease in greenhouse gas emissions. Hooray! So we have David Shoebridge on the phone from Sydney. Welcome, David. Oh, thanks very much. It's uh, the weird old world, isn't it, where we have to say, oh, my Lord, you know, we're very surprised that a decision-maker said, well, climate change might be a reason to not put, put, as I, uh, put forward a coal mine. But finally, we have someone who's actually said that. And, oh. and in fact, the decision, mate, the decision when you read it more closely was, was even more fascinating. Was like it? The way oh, go on. Um, Tell us well, the details. Well, yeah. So, so previously, when we've been assessing coal mines under the New South Wales Planning Act, the 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 the, the government has been very keen, and the coal industry have been very keen to say, "Well, look, 
sure, we're going to dig out, say, 21 million tonnes of coal out of this coal mine. We're going to dig it out in Newcastle, you know, in the Hunter Valley, or in this case, in the Gloucester Valley, and that's going to have some carbon intensity because we're going to have to use explosives and put some trucks down and put it on a train. And all of those carbon emissions of digging up the coal, um, they're happy to take into account. But what they've always um, been been adamant should not be taken into account is mm. the carbon impact of actually burning all the coal that you that you dig up. And they're saying, well, no, no, that's for somebody else to take into account further down the track. It's, it's not related to the coal mine. And so somehow this coal will be transported somewhere on the planet and then not burnt. And so um, the coal industry, coal mines have been approved, you know, one after the other in New South Wales. And it's mirrored in the assessments in Victoria and Queensland and so because they say, well, the, the carbon intensity of this coal mine is acceptable because they're not looking at the burning of the coal. So they're looking at what are called um, um, stage one and stage two um, emissions, the, 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 the stage one emissions are the emissions of the actually you know, yeah. coal mine operations itself. Um, um, stage two emissions are the emissions of, say, the, the electricity that's imported for the um, operation of the coal mine and transport from there. But they've refused ever to look at the the stage three emissions, which is the burning oh, of the I coal. I know, and then this, but this sets a precedent, you know. And this and, time they did. Yeah. Uh, do, do you think this is a world precedent, or what will what does it mean when you say setting a precedent? Would other other judge, judges all be obliged to kind of take that into consideration? Well, um, uh, this, this is a decision of a single judge of the Land and Environment Court, but it's the the chief judge of the Land and Environment Court, Preston, and. Um, He's often considered one of the um, sort of leading thinkers on in land and environment law in oh, Australia. Good. So, yeah. um, um, ordinarily, other judges would would in the land and environment court would go out of their way to follow his decision. Of course, most planning decisions for coal mines aren't, don't get to the court now. Most planning decisions for coal mines are signed off by this thing in New South Wales called the Planning Assessment Commission or the Independent Planning Commission. I think they've rebadged it. Mm. And so it doesn't get to the Land and Environment Court. And, and this judgment proves why the government is so keen not to allow things to go to the Land and Environment Court because they actually have a look at the real climate impacts. And, and, and in this case, those, those stage three emissions were more than 10 times greater than the stage one and the stage two emissions. Mm. It was a factor of 20 or so. I think um, 20 times greater, those global, those, those greenhouse gas emissions. And, and that's just one of the reasons why the, the, the court said no, no to this might. Because so we've, got, we've, got, we've, got we've got a carbon budget and this is just going to blow the carbon budget if we allow this, if, if only this kind of thinking was applied to Adani. Yeah. Well, does this mean that community groups have to take a, such a planning decision to court? Is this what's going to happen if it doesn't normally go to court? Well, in this case, the community groups could take it to court because they, for, for some reason, the assessment process, the, the minister in New South Wales normally determines if a matter can go to court or if it just dies in the Planning Assessment Commission or the Independent Planning Commission. All coal mines in New South Wales are, are, are assessed under state-significant development um, criteria, which, which means that the minister can choose whether or not... Um, the final decision lies with the Planning Assessment Commission or the, or the final decision can go to the Land and Environment Court. And time after time now we're seeing the Minister say, um, no, the, the final decision is given to the, to, to the Planning Assessment Commission and refusing to allow the community to take an appeal to the Land and Environment Court. And you can see why, because the Land and Environment Court is actually much more independent than mm. the so-called Independent Planning Commission. But um, I, this is a precedent 
that I know community groups, environment groups, um, Greens campaigners are going to be putting under the nose of every decision maker on every coal mine everywhere in the country and saying, this is how you assess it. If you're honest about the, the climate impacts of a coal mine, we have to say no new coal. I mean, that's, that's the conclusion that you get to. If you're honest about having a carbon budget, if you're honest about the climate emergency and you show this decision-making, this reasoning to any decision-maker, they will say, I'm sorry, no new coal. Then that's what we need to get to. Is this a, a global first? Because I have been following various legal... There's a lot in the pipeline, you know, a lot of these legal cases in the pipeline, but I haven't heard of one which just used climate as a criteria for saying no. Well, in terms of that stage three, the actual the climate impact of the coal being burnt, burnt as opposed yeah. to the, the digging of, 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 the, of, yeah. of the coal itself. Yes, well, I haven't either. And, and one of the reasons is most of the, the assessments for new coal mines are being done in very pro-coal countries like... Canada, parts of South America, you know, um, um, uh, Australia, South Africa, countries that, that, that for one reason or another have, have distorted their planning assessment procedures in order to, um, to promote coal and turn a blind eye, if you like, to the, to the damage that coal does. So, you know, in terms of those big coal-producing, coal-exporting countries, yes, I think this is a, this is a global first. Mm. Uh, jurisdictions like... You know, France and um, and Germany um, have had this kind of thinking for a number of years. But of the big coal exporting countries, yeah, this is a real first. Yeah. Well, I'm totally heartened by that. And I'd like to give a bit of a call out to people like Julie Lyford, Tim Buckley, <sighs> Phil, Will, Stefan. Apparently they contributed to the court and certainly that group ground, Groundswell Gloucester who fought off AG or gas in that valley and now have fought off this rocket. <laughs> they are... They're giant yeah. killers, aren't they? Yeah, ground, and this uh, is the, you know, climate change community action. Well, they have exemplified community action around there, just plugging away, plugging away, mastering this information and being so patient. It's been very destructive too. There's been lots of fallout. We've interviewed psychologists there who said, well, you know, families yeah. have fallen apart. It's, it's very hard work, this. This is community work and then these other experts and political people taking it up. We're coming towards a New South Wales election and then a federal election. I can imagine a lot of fear coming from the Business Council and others, you know, saying this decision is just going to put the kibosh on all our future wealth and good jobs and growth and everything. What, what do you think? How will it play out? Well, I'm certain the Minerals Council is looking at this and, and desperately looking for a way to get around it. And and I, I think their their most immediate path to get around it will be to approach the, the the new planning minister, whether it's a coalition or a Labor planning minister in in New South Wales, and say you can't ever let another coal mine go to the court. Well, you know we have to keep control of this amongst the bureaucrats <laughs> and the so-called independent planning commission, and never let another one go to court and and continue to sort of you know. Um, bastardise the planning process in New South Wales, and and you know I as a Greens MP on behalf of the community need to be saying, well, well no, we need to have genuinely independent judicial officers signing off on, you know, and assessing the the, the, the true impact of, of coal mines. And when when we have an independent person assess the true impact, they say no, uh, and that that should be a signal you would think to the rest of the political class 
because mm. I had time to get out of coal. Oh, I'm getting um, a signal, David, <laughs> to get oh, out so of the studio. Of yes. <laughs> I'm really sorry. I'm going to have to cut you off there, but this is a great day, and thank you for telling us about it, and good yeah, luck. Bye-bye. Yeah, that was, <laughs> thank you. That was uh, David Shoebridge from New South Wales. Look, thank you to the guests tonight, and thank you to the panel, which included Michaela and Andy in the background, and Adele, who's been there right in front of me, keeping it all on track. Um, Thank you to you listeners. Please subscribe to 3CR. You only have to pay $35 if you're a pensioner, $75 if you've got a job. Please subscribe. That's an annual subscription to 3CR. I want to tell you what's on in the two minutes I've got, um, you know, related to climate action. On the 12th of February in Melbourne, there's a play called No Planet B. There's No Planet B. You have to look up the Sustainable Living Festival program to find it out. But tomorrow, the 12th of February, there'll be a a dinner and a show at 307 Brunswick Street, Fitzroy. And um, the dinner is a sort of a vegan banquet, apparently. And he does a a poetry and storytelling and all around There Is No Planet B. On the 15th of February... There's something from Extinction Rebellion. I mentioned them. They're a new group. They're not sitting down. They're disrupting. And they're having a a die-in at Northlands Shopping Centre, 6pm on the 15th. If you want more information, you can email this name, darabin.die.in at gmail.com. Darabin.die.in at gmail.com gmail.com and that's from Extinction Rebellion. They're also having an organising meeting on the 2nd of March at Kathleen Syme Library which is 251 Faraday Street, Carlton. I suggest anyone gets involved in that if you if you are perhaps retired or you have spare time or you don't mind getting arrested or you just think it will be this is your time to do something for the future, join them. Um 13th of March is a bit later on the students strike for climate these young people from all over the world now it's a global day 13th of March a global day of striking for climate they said at the SLF yesterday why don't the adults all strike for climate too and it's kind of ripple through the audience wouldn't that be great but um, join them on the 13th of March look it up students strike for climate Thank you, everybody. Tune in now for the next show and um, stay tuned to 3CR. Please subscribe to 3CR. Tomorrow you can call 94198377 or look us up online and subscribe. Thank you, everyone. Good night and see you next week. Beyond Zero Emissions is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change action becomes an emergency, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero-emissions energy, zero-emissions exports and industry, zero-emissions transport, zero-emissions buildings and zero-emissions land use. Podcasts of our shows contain a who's who of community action and climate solutions. They're all available on the web at bze.org.au. We'd love your ideas for this show, so contact us at radioteam at bze.org.au. Or even write to us, care of Radio 3CR, 
21 Smith Street, Fitzroy, Victoria. You can make that attention, BZE Radio.